You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's version of Healthcare Insight. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Well, folks listening out there, you've heard in the past few weeks a number of different presentations, some on healthcare, some on politics, some on COVID. And today, what I want to talk about is the importance of education, because what we've been hearing over and over again is how our educational system is just not working so that people don't know how to understand simple things like health care, health care insurance, how to talk to their doctor, how to ask and when to ask for help. The American education system is at a major crossroad. We haven't had kids in school in some states for over a year. You've got kids in private school that are learning for the most part, but kids in public school, especially where there are teachers' unions, have not been teaching the kids now for a very long time. We found out early on that teaching by Zoom and over the Internet just is not getting the job done. The kids don't focus. They're not paying attention. And the teachers really aren't reaching each student like they would if they were uh, in class. And the students certainly aren't getting the socialization. So we've got major problems that have come out in terms of the health care of our population when we're not attending school. So I want to step back today. And I want to talk about education in the United States. And a great source for that is a fellow named David Barton. David Barton is a historian, and he's got very clear views on education and the problems with education today. And I want to talk about that history part that he presents, what education used to be like back a couple decades and centuries ago even versus what we have today. I think that we just don't understand how much our educational system has deteriorated and why most other countries around the world are doing so much better than we are. And with this COVID shutdown of education and our kids for such a long period of time, we are going to be falling further and further behind. So if there's a connection to healthcare, it's that the healthcare crisis we've been in for the last year has had a very deleterious effect and impact on our educational system. So, David, give us a quick brief on a little bit of the history as you see it, and then I want to ask a series of questions. And these are coming from a YouTube presentation by uh, David, and I want to interject questions and bring out and highlight and then comment on some of the ideas that he brings forth. America is now entering its fifth century of educating students. For every generation of Americans throughout the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, and now the 21st centuries, a good education has been a major emphasis. It was that way when the first colonists arrived here four centuries ago, and that goal remains unchanged today. David, we've had a lot of changes over the decades and centuries even that you're talking about with technology changes and how that's impacted education. Um, But many people are concerned about content. What are your views? Yet by what standard should a good education be measured? It must be measured by more than just technological advances. It must also be measured by how much content a student has learned and how well that student has been taught to think and to reason. Unfortunately, there's abundant evidence that while the technological advances in this generation have been significant, the cognitive advances have not been nearly as great. 
David, give me some examples of the difference in content. Tell me what content was back a couple hundred years ago in terms of, say, geography and, and even math. How is it different then versus today? Consider, for example, this 1862 geography test from Chicago Public Schools. Notice some of the fourth grade questions in 1862. How many degrees of longitude are there? How many degrees wide are the temperate zones? What is a watershed? Name the principal animals of the frigid zones. This represented basic fourth grade knowledge in 1862. That same year, this math text, Ray's Arithmetic, was one of the most popular elementary math texts in American schools. Notice some elementary math questions from 1862. I insured two-thirds of a shop worth $3,600 and four-fifths of a house worth $6,000, paying $126. What was the rate of insurance? Or, how much money must be given with nine $100 shares at 15% discount in exchange for eight $100 bonds at 2% discount? And these were elementary math problems. You know, David, that's pretty shocking. I bet a lot of adults in this audience probably can't uh, solve some of those or answer some of those questions about geography. But, you know, today kids are using computers and they've got handheld uh, phones that have calculators on them to solve some of their math problems. We're kind of losing out on our ability to think through things without those tools. Give us an example of how critical thinking is developed in the world that may no longer exist, but that really minds don't change. How do we get back and give us some examples of what was going on back in the 1800s in creating the thoughtfulness around how to solve problems without those kind of technology we have today? This math book for elementary students provides exercises that students had to solve mentally only. That is, only in their minds. No pencils, no papers allowed. Notice some of the mental math problems for elementary students in 1877. A boat worth $864, of which one-eighth belonged to A, one-fourth to B, and the rest to C was lost. What loss did each sustain, it having been insured for $500? This was a mental math problem in elementary schools in 1877. Here's another. On a farm, there are 60 animals. Horses, cows, and sheep. For each horse, there are three cows, and for each cow, there are two sheep. How many animals of each kind? Or try this one. If seven men can do a piece of work in four days, in what time can it be done if three of the men leave when the work is half completed? In 1877, these were math problems that elementary students solved in their minds. I think you may be overwhelming the audience with trying to even follow uh, these problems and these questions that were done by elementary school students a uh, century and a half or more ago. Um, I don't want to beat on a dead horse, but uh, give us some things about maybe history so that people can again see that in every subject we were doing so much better in educating our children way back when. Than we are today, and certainly we've lost all this time in even the poorest of education that we've been getting. And now to try to contrast that with what was going on 150 years ago. So tell us a little bit about uh, some history questions. Or try a few basic history questions from 1882. History questions about the United States Constitution. 
What is a writ of habeas corpus? What is a bill of attainder? What is an ex post facto law? Enumerate the powers denied to the several states. What are bills of credit? How many elementary students today, or even adults in this so-called modern and advanced generation, could answer such elementary academic questions as these from a century ago? Consider one final example of the educational content of previous generations. It is this book, The Federalist Papers. Written in the years 1787 and 1788 by three prominent founding fathers, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay, this work explained to the citizens of the new United States why a federal constitution was needed. Even today, this work is still considered the single most authoritative source on the intent of the Constitution. There is currently a law professor in Alabama who requires his law students to read this book. All of it. And why not? Before they can become attorneys, they'll swear an oath to uphold the Constitution. So why not learn about the intent of the document they'll swear to uphold? Yet those law students, enrolled in today's graduate-level legal studies, regularly complain to him about the difficulty of reading that old book. That professor nods sympathetically and responds, I understand. This book was not written for someone at your educational level. This book was written for the common, average, upstate New York farmer of 1787. Perhaps someday you, as a graduate student, will attain the educational level of those early New York farmers. Sounds like our early education system was really remarkable and gave us that strong start to the kind of republic that we had and the ability to build on the founding fathers who were very well educated, very well knowledgeable about so many things to be able to create this whole structure of our government. So I think you pointed out some amazing things that maybe people don't think about that the educational system from so long ago was very structured, very detailed, and uh, gave us a great start to this country. Indisputably, our early educational system was remarkable. In fact, since it was responsible for producing the longest ongoing constitutional republic in the history of the world, it is worth looking more closely at what, for four centuries, made the American educational system so successful and so different from all others. You know, David, I don't think people actually connect the success of our government to the success of those early educational programs that were put in place. Because I love the comment that you make in some of your presentations that what happens in the classroom, the learning that goes on the classroom, creates the government in the next generation. So give us a little bit more insight into that, that genius of our founding fathers and their education and the educational system that they established and built on for their children and whose shoulders we all stand on today, that sometimes we just forget how all this really started and why education matters. Because too often we've given, as conservatives, the education of our children at all levels, from elementary school through college, over to liberal left-wing educators who don't teach about American history. And we have people taking over government positions, business positions, high-level authorities that just don't have the kind of education that our early founders established and we're well aware of. Tell us more about that. America has the most successful form of government of any nation in the history of the world. 
Yet consider those who originated our form of government, those who penned our original governmental documents. Where did they get the unique ideas that have caused America to be so different from all other nations? Perhaps the answer is found in an axiom often attributed to President Abraham Lincoln. The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. Very simply, it was the philosophy of the schoolroom two centuries ago that produced the unique American philosophy of government. So let's begin by looking at the philosophy of the classroom and the schools from which our early leaders graduated. David, let me just jump in there and tell you we have a quick commercial break coming up. But that's a great teaser to carry people over to the next segment so we can look at the educational system of our founding fathers, some of those colleges and universities that exist today that are just bastions of liberalism, and let's see how they started and how they've morphed into the issues that they address today so differently from what they were professing and teaching back a century and a half ago. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmv. HOF.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. And today we're mixing up two topics, healthcare and education. You know, it's hard to get people to think critically around healthcare, free markets, competition, our own economic system, capitalism versus socialism, when people aren't getting the right kind of education. And I love what was just said in the last segment. The philosophy of the classroom in one generation determines the politics and the philosophy of the next generation. So today, we're talking to historian, expert, David Barton, and he's talking about education of our founding fathers and our educational system then versus now. So we're down to the point where we're talking about how our founding fathers were educated, where they went to school, and how those schools were structured back in the day when our founding fathers were so brilliantly establishing this republic. So, David, tell us about those schoolings and those colleges and universities of our founding fathers, and how they were teaching back then. Schools such as Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Harvard was started by the Congregationalists as a school to train ministers of the gospel. 
It produced signers of the Declaration, such as John Adams, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, William Ellery, William Hooper, Robert Treat Payne, William Williams, and Elbridge Gerry. And signers of the Constitution, such as William Samuel Johnson and Rufus King, and other prominent leaders, including Fisher Ames, a framer of the Bill of Rights, William Cushing, an original justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, and Timothy Pickering, an American general during the Revolution and the Secretary of War for Presidents George Washington and John Adams. Harvard trained a number of our founding fathers. What was its educational philosophy? The answer to that question is set forth in Harvard's two mottos, for Christ and the Church and for the glory of Christ. Consistent with its two mottos, Harvard told its students, Let every student be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus, which is eternal life, John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Wow. I don't think anybody would recognize Harvard with that background and that history. I don't know many people that I come across that would know and understand that that was the foundational educational basis for Harvard University that is now such a bastion of liberalism. My guess is that many of those founding fathers and signers of the Constitution you just mentioned would have been canceled in today's culture for that kind of a belief in faith, in Christ, and having a Christian basis for their education and their own philosophies. So tell us a little bit more about that. To help students place Christ as the foundation of learning, Harvard instituted specific educational practices. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein. At Harvard, academic endeavors were built upon the foundation of biblical principles. And this was the philosophy of education that produced a significant number of those who founded our philosophy of government. Yale was another popular school of that day, and like Harvard, it was started by Congregationalists as a school to train ministers of the gospel. It produced signers of the Declaration such as Lyman Hall, Philip Livingston, Lewis Morris, and Oliver Wolcott, and signers of the Constitution such as Abraham Baldwin, Jared Ingersoll, and William Livingston, and other prominent leaders, including Noah Webster, a famous educator and the author of the dictionary that still bears his name, Zephaniah Swift, author of the first American legal text, and James Kent, a leading judge called a father of American jurisprudence. Yale admonished his students, Above all, have an eye to the great end of all your studies which is to obtain the clearest conceptions of divine things and to lead you to a saving knowledge of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. In pursuit of this goal, Yale required. All the scholars are required to live a religious and blameless life according to the rules of God's Word, diligently reading the Holy Scriptures and constantly attending all the duties of religion. Yale, like Harvard, provided an education based on knowing Christ and studying the Scriptures. Perhaps the school that produced more early national leaders than any other was Princeton. Princeton had been started by the Presbyterians as a school to train ministers of the gospel. 
and it produced signers of the Declaration such as Richard Stockton and Benjamin Rush, and signers of the Constitution such as Gunning Bedford, Jonathan Dayton, James Madison, and William Patterson, and other prominent early leaders, including Oliver Ellsworth, a Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Henry Lee, a general in the American Revolution known as Light Horse Harry Lee, and William Bradford, the U.S. Attorney General under President George Washington. Many Princeton graduates were personally trained by University President John Witherspoon, who was himself a signer of the Declaration. What did John Witherspoon require of students at Princeton? Every student shall attend worship in the college hall morning and evening and shall attend public worship on the Sabbath. There shall be assigned to each class certain exercises for their religious instruction, and no student belonging to any class shall neglect them. Here are some of Witherspoon's lectures, and he personally taught students. He is the best friend to American liberty, who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion, and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down on profanity and immorality of every kind. Whoever is an avowed enemy of God, I hesitate not to call him an enemy to his country. Dr. Witherspoon taught that a true friend of liberty and America would promote religion and bear down on profanity and immorality. David, this is just a remarkable history that goes hidden, is never taught. I never even learned this in school when I was going to school many decades ago. This is lost history on how our founding fathers were educated in these Ivy League schools that today many in America feel are working against the common citizen, that they are trying to promote big government liberalism. They certainly aren't supporting the concepts of freedom and individual responsibility that our founding fathers established in the Constitution, that many of these people are working against America. They find America to blame for everything. And they certainly don't have that religious context that you're talking about. So why did all this change? And why would they present themselves in the way they did a century and a half ago? What was the value of that for them? Why? Because it was understood that American government was merely a reflection of American citizens. If citizens became profane and immoral, the government would become profane and immoral. And history has proven that such governments do not survive. So naturally... A friend of America would promote religion and morality. Not only did prominent American educators such as John Witherspoon equip students with a biblical foundation in academic education, but they were so committed to sound education for all students that they directly confronted two centuries of tradition and law imposed on them by the British and founded some of the first schools for women and for African Americans, something unheard of at that time. For example, John Witherspoon personally trained a number of African-American students at Princeton, including John Chavez, who went on to become a famous preacher and educator in North Carolina. And Francis Hopkinson, a signer of the Declaration, was also instrumental in the early development of African-American education. And Benjamin Franklin, a signer of both the Declaration and the Constitution, helped found a series of schools for African-Americans, training students both in academics and in the principles of Christianity. And Benjamin Rush, another signer of the Declaration, helped open education for women and was intimately involved with the first American school to educate women. These founding fathers and many others set a new direction for education by pioneering education for all children, 
regardless of race or gender. David, that's an unbelievable insight into the educational system at the college university level that our founding fathers went through that gave them the knowledge, the insight, the inspiration, the creativity to establish this republic, this great American experiment that we're under. Tell us more about the public education and how that got started and how that came to be. America's first public education laws had been passed at about the same time that Harvard had been established. Those laws proceeded directly from the experiences of the early settlers who'd arrived in America. Those settlers were still concerned about the civil atrocities that had occurred in Europe. Those atrocities, such as the Inquisition and the Crusades, too often had occurred under the banner of Christianity. And America's early immigrants were convinced that the widespread illiteracy and lack of biblical knowledge that had characterized Europe in those days had been at the root of these atrocities. The civil and religious leaders in Europe had told the people that the Bible authorized such atrocities. And because the people were illiterate and therefore could not read the scriptures to judge the accuracy of what their leaders told them, they blindly followed and believed all they were told, thus indirectly contributing to those atrocities. The American settlers were convinced that if the common people could read and could learn the word of God for themselves, then they would resist government misbehavior. Therefore, to preclude such occurrences in America, in 1642 they passed America's first public school law. It is contained in this book, The Code of Laws of 1650. By the way, notice that the cover of books at that time were often made out of thin slices of wood covered with paper. This is what constituted a hardback book. Interestingly, America's first educational law was called the Old Deluder Satan Act, and it declared, It being one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures, as in former time. And on the law continued, requiring that public schools be started in each community so that American students would have a sound academic education based on God's Word. This Bible-centered emphasis in education was common in subsequent education laws as well, a fact confirmed by the records of foreign visitors to America. Following America's surprising success as an independent nation, foreign observers would travel here to investigate what had caused America's rapid rise. These foreign visitors would document our various customs and practices and then return to their native countries and publish the results of their investigations. One such foreign visitor was Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville. His observations on the religious nature of American public education are recorded in his work. Originally called The Republic of the United States of America and its Political Institutions Reviewed and Examined, today it is simply called Democracy in America. David, I don't know about the rest of our audience. I hope a lot of people are listening and will hear this in the various ways this is stored and archived and and presented through uh, America's Web Radio, but you have given us an amazing insight into the biblical nature, the faith-based nature of the founding of our country's educational system. And today we can't even pray in school. It's just remarkable transformation. I'm so glad that you're here to give us this foundation. If you'll hang on, we just want to continue this discussion after this next commercial break. We'll be right back. 
If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking about the connection of a lot of things, health care and education, education and government, the founding of our country, and faith-based education, and how all this connected in our original founding fathers and the original founding documents. And we're relying on the expertise of a presentation made by David Barton, a historian who has researched and has original documents to support all the things that he's talking about. It is truly remarkable that most of us have not, certainly myself, have not had the kind of history, education, background, and understanding of how faith so critically established our country, our political structures, and was so instrumental in the founding of colleges and universities and the materials that were originally presented, and then to contrast that with what's happened today, where you can't even pray in school silently. And what's happened to our country has been a gradual erosion of that basis of faith and understanding of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness across our founding documents and our basic principles of this country. It reminds me as I'm listening to David today, of that old story about the frog in the pot. That if you throw him in the hot water, he's going to jump out. But if you put him in the cool water and you heat it up gradually till it's boiling and he's going to die, he doesn't know what's happening. And we certainly as a country have not been paying attention over these many decades about how our educational system has so changed and so worked against the founding fathers' intent on creating an educational system based on the Judeo-Christian foundations of this country. So, David, give us a little bit more on some of the other people from foreign countries that have come in and analyzed us after we got started to see the kind of great success we had and how our educational system factored into that. Britain Edward Kendall was another foreign visitor who reported the same fact about the religious element in public education in America in his three-volume set. As he traveled from state to state, he would document the diverse aspects of American life, from courts of justice to Indian missions, from prison systems to theaters and public entertainments. 
While in Connecticut, Kendall had examined American education, and he found the state's illiteracy law of interest, particularly the opening declaration of that law. This legislature, observing that, notwithstanding our former orders made for the education of children, there are many persons unable to read the English tongue, and thereby incapable of reading the holy word of God or the good laws of this state. Notice the reason that the Connecticut legislature had been concerned about illiteracy. If a child could not read, then he would not know the word of God or the laws of the state. This meant that if the legislature enacted a law that contradicted the word of God, then citizens might not prevent its passage. Another famous education law was called the Northwest Ordinance. It was the first federal law to address education. Significantly, that law was passed at the identical time and by the identical founding fathers who drafted the First Amendment, the very same amendment that the courts now interpret as prohibiting the presence of religious activities in public schools. So it's pretty clear this whole idea of separation of church and state that's used so often today in this country, there was no separation between church and education in the state, that that was actually the foundation of our educational system. Tell us a little bit more about that. Interestingly, Article 3 of that federal law directly linked religion and public education together, declaring, Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. The founders believed, and the first federal educational law established, that schools and education systems were a proper means to encourage the religion, morality, and knowledge that was so necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind. Our founding fathers did not believe that encouraging religion in schools was unconstitutional. Rather, they believed just the opposite. Only in recent decades have courts ruled otherwise. So, David, how long did religion stay as a part of our educational system? Tell us how it sort of morphed into where it is today. How long did it really last as part of the core of our educational uh, process? An indication of how long religious lessons remained a part of public education in America is seen in these two textbooks, used in Dallas Public Schools until 1974. One is a Bible study course of the Old Testament, the other is a Bible study course of the New Testament. Both were credit courses for graduation. Notice the lessons. Lesson 1 in the New Testament course begins with questions based on John chapter 1. Where was Christ before he was born on earth? What titles did John apply to Christ in this chapter? For what purpose was John sent by God? Name five things the angel told Mary concerning her child Jesus. What does the word Jesus mean? And there are many other similar questions. At the end of lesson one is memory work. Memorize the pre-existence of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Such textbooks were reflective of the requirements of that original federal law that public schools address religion, morality, and knowledge. Wow, so that was as late as 1974, which seemed like yesterday to some of us older folk, but it was nearly 50 years ago. So how did this connection between faith, religion, education also work into various 
say, state governments? How did all this come together even back in the 1970s? But the effect of that law was seen in more than just textbooks. It was also quite evident in state constitutions. For example, when Ohio penned its first state constitution in 1802, that constitution declared, Religion, morality, and knowledge being essentially necessary to the good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of instruction shall forever be encouraged by legislative provision. The same provision was present in the constitutions of state after state, including Mississippi, Kansas, Nebraska, and so many others. In fact, that provision is still found in current state constitutions today. This book from 1893 is yet a further confirmation of how American education inculcated the three elements of religion, morality, and knowledge set forth in that early federal law. 1892 was the 400th anniversary of Columbus Day, celebrated that year by a huge international festival in Chicago. The various trades and professions prepared records of their progress over the previous four centuries, and this book was prepared by the Kansas Teachers Organization to review the history of education in America during that time. The book confirms that, in its words, education was nurtured in the lap of the church, but that as the nation grew and the number of inhabitants in America increased, the church voluntarily relinquished control of elementary education to the state. Yet the philosophy of education did not change. In fact, the state superintendent of public instruction even declared If the study of the Bible is to be excluded from all state schools, if the inculcation of the principles of Christianity is to have no place in the daily program, if the worship of God is to form no part of the general exercises of these public elementary schools, then the good of the state would be better served by restoring all schools to church control. State public education leaders believed that if public education ever reached the point that it did not inculcate religion, morality and knowledge, that it did not teach the Bible in schools, did not inculcate the principles of Christianity, and did not incorporate the daily worship of God, then the country would be better off if the state gave all of its schools back to the church. It's just so hard to believe that that was the basis of our founding fathers and the educational system of this country that we have changed and morphed so much that now we have to keep religion out of schools. Tell us about some of the colleges and universities. Weren't there ministers running those colleges? And yeah, the churches gave over the educational system to the states with the idea that they would continue with the faith-based initiatives and the kind of education that was originally formed through the churches. But now we have two systems where the, ch- the churches and the Catholics run many schools, inner city schools, that do so much better because they are faith-based. They are structured around personal responsibility and giving people the kind of moral lessons that they need to have to be able to be successful citizens. But tell us about university professors back then and how they were mainly ministers. So closely was religious faith embraced as a part of a sound public education, even on the university level, that in 1860, 262 out of 288 college presidents were ministers of the gospel, as were more than a third of all university faculty members. And in 1890, James Angell, president of the University of Vermont and the University of Michigan, 
reported that over 90% of the state universities that he surveyed conducted chapel services. At half of the state universities, chapel attendance was compulsory, and a quarter of the state universities required regular church attendance in addition to chapel attendance. This was the practice of state universities, simply continuing the philosophy of education that had caused America to become the most successful and prosperous nation in the history of the world. Weren't many of these early educational leaders also part of the revolution and revolutionary leaders, uh, these faith-based ministers that participated and supported the American Revolution with a cause and a purpose that they wanted to have a country founded on the kind of liberty and morality that they knew was so critical to a successful country, especially a new country getting started. Interestingly, many of America's early educational leaders had also been patriots who had fought for the establishment of America as an independent nation during the Revolutionary War. They understood that if America was to endure beyond the American Revolution, then the principles on which America had been birthed nurtured and developed must be successfully transmitted to future generations. It was for this reason that so many of those early patriots became directly involved in writing educational plans, authoring textbooks, or starting universities. David, tell us more about Benjamin Rush, the founding of the American education system and his philosophy. One of those early educational leaders was Dr. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence who also served in three presidential administrations. Dr. Rush had helped found five colleges, three of which still exist today. He was also a university professor, authored numerous textbooks, and was possibly the first founding father following the ratification of the Constitution to propose nationwide public schools, for which he may be titled the father of public schools under the Constitution. In one of his famous educational policy papers, a defense of the use of the Bible as a school book, Dr. Rush set forth nearly a dozen reasons why the Bible should always remain the principal textbook in American education. He closed that piece with a succinct warning on what would happen in America if the Bible were removed from schools. In contemplating the political institutions of the United States, I lament that if we remove the Bible from schools, we waste so much time and money punishing crimes and take so little pains to prevent them. For this divine book, above all others, favors that equality among mankind, that respect for just laws, and those sober and frugal virtues which constitute the soul of our government. Great stuff. Let's take another quick commercial break, and we'll come back for our final segment in this week's program, Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to write and join the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. 
Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is the last session this week. And what we've been talking about is the educational system from a historical perspective, how faith and religion, morality, good conduct, good education helped to found this country and how we have moved away from those basic principles that were so important to our founding fathers' education and to the structure that they created to educate the children of this country give everybody equal access to education. So I want to return to David and his description. His, he's a great historical figure that has been studying this stuff for many, many years, has original documents to prove the information that he's presenting. And I appreciate the fact that all of this is available at David Barton. On YouTube, you can go and listen to more of this information, but I'm pulling out segments of what I have heard him speak about that I think goes to the heart of being sure that we have an educated country. Now, how does this relate to health care? Well, it relates to health care in my mind in that people are just not being logical. They're not able to read the documents. We're not reading bills. We're not understanding the impact of bills and legislation on our freedoms and liberty. And all of this material this week, I hope, is opening the eyes to the much better educational system we had because so much of our children has been taken over by the distortions of history that are presented in our current education system. And they're being brainwashed, if not propagandized, into believing certain things that just aren't true. The separation of church and state, for example, was completely false. It's, it was built into our early education system and was a very important part of the morality of this country. So I want to go back to David Barton, and I want to have him talk about a figure that most everybody would know the name of as well, and that is Noah Webster, the founder of the Webster Dictionaries, and how he was so important in the original founding of this country and the educational system and the impact that he had. So, David, tell us a little bit more your thoughts on Noah Webster and what's been happening in this country in terms of removing the Bible and the teachings of morality from our current education system. Today, however, the Bible has been pushed not just to the back of the classroom, it's been pushed completely out of the classroom, supposedly in the name and by the authority of the same early leaders who worked so hard to put the Bible in the classroom and to keep it there. 
Noel Webster was another famous American with a significant impact on education. He was a soldier during the American Revolution, a legislator, a judge, and was responsible for part of the language in the Constitution. As an educator, Webster helped found Amherst College, and he authored scores of textbooks on a number of different subjects, including the famous dictionary that bears his name. His impact on education was so profound that he's been titled the Schoolmaster to America. Webster's school text, therefore, not only included rigorous academic exercises, but they also contained moral and religious lessons. And Webster did not hesitate to acknowledge the important role that Christianity had played in the establishment of America as a successful independent nation. For example, in this famous textbook, His History of the United States, a history and government text long used in our public schools, Webster taught students, The brief exposition of the Constitution of the United States will unfold to young persons the principles of republican government. And our citizens should early understand that the genuine source of correct republican principles is the Bible, particularly the New Testament. David, you're bringing forth information and documents and books that I certainly was not uh, very aware of, and I doubt that many people in this country other than history PhDs probably um, are aware of, if, if even they are. Um, but most of the people in this country, the average citizen, knows George Washington and a little bit of the history there. What did George Washington, our first president, have to say about our educational system and the need for moral imperatives and the basic principles of this country and teaching ourselves and our children about how we should be in a self-governant situation with people acting and having conscience and having a certain morality. What did George Washington have to say about all this? George Washington was another strong supporter of sound education, a fact made clear throughout his presidency from his signing of the Northwest Ordinance in his first year through his message to Congress calling for the establishment of national universities and academies in his last year. However, Washington's educational philosophy had been revealed long before his presidency. In 1779, Delaware Indian chiefs brought some of their youth to George Washington, asking that they be trained in America's schools. Washington received those youth, assuring the chiefs that Congress will look upon them as their own children. That is, that we would look after and train Indian youth with the same care and diligence that we did our own youth. Washington then commended the chiefs for their decision to bring their children to American schools, telling them, You do well to wish to learn our arts and our ways of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. Congress will do everything they can to assist you in this wise intention. You know, it's interesting, the relationship with the Native Americans back then, I know there were a lot of atrocities as the country moved west and there were battles with the Indians that, and took over their lands and they lived here. And that's uh, the history of the world in many ways of people moving from one land to another one. But I've recently done my own family uh, history. And there are many stories that I've discovered in there about people in my family that came over just after the Mayflower. They came over to the uh, Massachusetts colony rather than the uh, Plymouth colony that was the original uh, settling of the um, uh, pilgrims. And what I found in there were stories about how the Native Americans would come into church 
and they would be part of the community. There was no fighting. There was no battles. There was a, a community understanding that we were working together and trying to assimilate within the cultures of what were found here. And that was very early on before there was so much warring and battling and and uh, fighting uh, with the Native American populations and different tribes as we went across the country. So this idea of education and faith-based uh, exposure to Native Americans as well as all Americans was clearly something that I found firsthand. So many of our founding fathers came from that same geographic area in New England where the Massachusetts colony was originally established. And I understand there was a New England primer that taught much of the education for many decades. Can you tell us a little bit about the New England primer and its role in education and how it used faith and the Bible to teach lessons? Well into the 20th century, the New England primer remained a common text from which American students learned to read. Over its two centuries of use, the cover page of the primer could change from edition to edition, but the primer itself maintained three core elements, the rhyming alphabet, the alphabet of lessons for youth, and the shorter catechism. I'm fascinated particularly, David, about the first element, the rhyming alphabet. You know, our audience and myself certainly can remember back to our early days in elementary school and learning the alphabet. And I'm curious to see how learning the alphabet under this New England primer that was available for decades uh, into new centuries, um, not until that long ago. How was the alphabet taught under this New England primer? Notice the content of the first core element, the rhyming alphabet. And recall that for two centuries, this alphabet was a key part of public education in America. A. In Adam's fall, we send all. B. Heaven to find, the Bible mind. C. Christ crucified, for sinners died, and so on. The second key element of the primers was the alphabet of lessons for youth. This section was the ABCs in a bold column running vertically down the page, with each letter of the alphabet accompanied by a Bible verse. A. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. From Proverbs 10.1 B. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. From Proverbs 15.16 C. Come unto Christ, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. From Matthew 11.28 and so forth. So David, how do you think our founding fathers like Benjamin Rush would have felt if they saw education today and how it's so changed. It would not have surprised Dr. Benjamin Rush to learn that our academic achievements have fallen significantly since the secularization of public education. For he had long ago observed, and those parents or schoolmasters who neglect the religious instruction of their children and pupils, reject and neglect the most effectual means of promoting knowledge in our country. So David, we only got a few minutes left. Give us your overview perspective on education in the United States today versus the changes that have gone over these last uh, two millennial that changes how our country is run, the philosophies of the new leadership that we have in place. What's your perspective on education as we wrap this section up? The successful philosophy of education that characterized America for centuries has undergone a revolution in recent years. 
A revolution not by citizen action or legislative interference, but rather by judicial activism, with courts and judges suddenly prohibiting what had been permissible for centuries. Secularization of education is the new order of the day, where recent decades clearly demonstrate that the more secular our public schools become, the less successful they are academically. Unfortunately, too many today are unaware of the massive and dramatic changes that have recently occurred in American education, and too many others are simply complacent. Yet it is important that every citizen today, whether they have students in school or not, be concerned about the condition of education. As educator Noah Webster warned long ago, The education of youth should be watched with the most scrupulous attention. It is much easier to introduce and establish an effectual system than to correct by penal statutes the ill effects of a bad system. Every citizen should exert the time and effort necessary to ensure that schools are teaching sound content and providing a good education, and that those who teach in the classrooms, as well as those elected to school boards and legislatures, are individuals who respect, honor, and embrace the time-tested principles of a sound education. And if the leaders in schools you work with will not do so, then replace the leaders or start new schools. Remember, imparting mere academic knowledge should never be a sufficient final objective for learning, nor should the secularization of education ever become acceptable. So to summarize everything, it should be about religion, morality, and knowledge. Those three things should be taught in our schools to all of our children. Is that what I'm hearing you say? For four centuries in American education, religion, morality, and knowledge form the basis of character and achievement. Experience and common sense demonstrate that these elements are still the foundation that will enable today's students to be the solid citizens and the great leaders of the future. I want to thank you, uh, Professor Barton, for giving us tremendous insights to the history of the United States and education. And for those in the audience, the main reason I bring this up is because we've talked about socialism creeping into this country through health care, through education, through increased poverty, all the things that will control populations. And I want to take this hour this week to talk about education and how we have gotten faith and religion and morality out of the public school. We can't even silently pray in school and it's having that kind of negative impact our entire culture. Again, the main message is how you train people in school at a young age determines what the next generation is. And remember Ronald Reagan's words that we are only a generation from losing our liberties and our constitutional rights. And that's what's happening today. Stand up and be heard. The first step to solving the problem is awareness. And I hope this hour has created some awareness in people listening to this presentation. Please join us next week. On America's Web Radio, this is Ron Bachman signing off for Healthcare Insight. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.